0: If we can't talk to each other, we're not going to make it. Sometimes I feel like I've
1: bitten off more than I can chew. Most of the time I work in a glass jar and lead a very uneventful life. A face full of glass hurts like hell when you're in it. That's weird. That glass looks half me. Eating glass. Eating glass and staring into the abyss. Glass? Who gives a shit about
0: glass? Who the fuck is this?
1: It's kind of part of our culture to eat glass. <laughs> And get some safety goggles next time.
0: Uh, <laughs> hey, everybody, and welcome to Chewing Glass, the show where we talk to developers building in the Solana ecosystem. Today, once again, another special guest professional surfer, glass chewer, um, and the uh, underwater hockey specialist. We have with us today Anatoly Yakovenko. Um, founder and CEO of uh, Solana Labs. How's it going, man? It's great. Good to be here. Yeah, it's been uh it's been a wild um I think I don't know, maybe it's been a wild 84 years, but in reality, like the last six months have also been pretty wild. But the the network's held up. It never stops. <laughs> it never <laughs> The network's held up. We've had some really cool mints lately, just lots of stuff. But the way we normally start this show out is is really just to like hear the the origin story of Anatoly like you obviously founded Solana you built this incredible technology but like want to go back as far as we can to like when Anatoly actually started writing his first line of code or just got interested in software in general was this always something you were into or or did how, how did that whole thing start
1: my first line of code this is kind of funny it was like I think fifth grade in the Soviet Union they had somehow gotten these like computers that could do basic i don't even remember what they were but i think they might have been like commodores they got them like from like some special donation and we had a programming class and i hated it and i switched to theater <laughs> okay i don't think anybody knew that but that's interesting yeah. <laughs> and then uh like and then i got into a while I was already in the states. Um kind of like in my middle middle school teenage years, like middle school to high school, dabbling
0: around with HTML and jQuery and all that fun stuff or were you a little bit deeper than that?
1: Oh, this was I think before well this it, it, the web was kind of like this was what 95 oh okay 9495. Um for whatever reason I like found some other like I think uh friendless teenagers <laughs> we we started like messing around with like linux and like the hackers movie came out it's just like kind of became like something that i became more and more interested in like computer networks open source and learned a little you know bare basic bones fc and like kind of that was like my start actually i remember when you were like started
0: to tweet there's like that hackers um channel on twitter and i started like i followed it cuz they'll just show those little clips or whatever a- yeah. actually hackers was the start of my sort of interest in computers even though most of that shit is just completely unreasonable but like that was sort of my intro into it too like it was like wow this is pretty crazy um but i i still watch it at least once a year yeah. still
1: i had a i had like a friend that had like 2600 magazines and we would try to figure out how to like mail bomb stuff. oh i had uh n- do, net, net do that we're not supposed to yeah we had net bus <laughs>
0: which was just this basically a trojan horse that you sent to your friends over icq so you could open up their cd-rom drive and all kinds of weird stuff like that <laughs> <laughs> so so you did that like did you so i guess the trajectory for you like you you think at that time you were like um you're going to go to college and you're going to like dive deep into computers, like, and like you got to see So I'm guessing like CS degree.
1: uh, Yeah. I was actually split between doing CS and like bioengineering, uh, uh, like, I like biology, microbiology and chemistry. And, um, and like, I, I don't know, this was, I, I was a bad student in high school, meaning I didn't have like good habits when I got to college. I thought those I could, like, ride on that. (laughs) And I overloaded my first year with, like, all the really hard bio classes, all the really hard CS classes. And that was hard. And I decided to drop the bio stuff and focus strictly on CS.
0: And then, like, when you were, I mean, I'm assuming, like, when you were in school, you weren't just taking the classes. You were sort of experimenting on the side, just, like, building random, tinkering around with random stuff.
1: Yeah, um, I met up. Through underwater hockey, this is like <laughs> through like some friends, uh, like a couple of folks are working on a startup and I joined them. And this is, we're trying to build voice RIP systems that could basically take, like run your phone switching network. This is before Vonage or Google voice, but kind of did the same thing. We had, we didn't have this like global phone switch idea. That would have been better, but we were trying to like build these systems for like people to put in their businesses or whatever, and like built these programmable, like phone dispatch systems that you could like, like, yeah, I don't know if you remember those like really cheesy menus. You like press one to do this, press two to do this, but like you could generate all of the stuff really easily with like XML and, and whatever, like make, make all the phone switching pure, completely software configurable. And this was like 2000 before the, and before the dot-com crash, but then we continued building through it like through college, but we were in the middle of Illinois. It's really, really hard to get funding in the middle of Illinois after the dot-com crash. So like while we were in college, it was pretty easy to keep it running on ramen. And then it just kind of <laughs> collapsed.
0: Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so after that, um, like I think a lot of people know like where you ended up prior to Solana. So like, sort of like, let's start with your sort of trajectory after college and the sort of the jobs that you had and like, and what you were actually doing. Um, Yeah. So
1: like, there was, uh, like Qualcomm was using the same kind of software stack to build a bunch of like phone systems. One of them was like a push to talk system. And, um, they basically hired me on the stuff on the spot because I was like, a college kid that knew what the hell was SIP was. And like all of cheap, these cheap like... Cheap labor real, to the, who knows yeah, the shit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all, all of these like really like, you know, RFCs that are like very, very, very erudite and like full of weird jargon about like phone systems and switching and, and all this stuff. So um, I, mo- I had a bunch of interviews. What I really liked about Qualcomm is that when I they flew me out there, and they everyone in the office was like wearing board shorts and flip flops, and this <laughs> was like in Solana paperwork. Beach. Was like, this was in Carmel Valley, so not okay. Sol- Valley, so not not Solana Beach, but in San Diego, pretty cl- close enough to the beach. Um, so I was more, I was kind of like, okay, this is like way better working environment than anything else that I had lined up. So I ended up working there and I kind of immediately for whatever reason, I just like was into benchmarking and like profiling and digging through the code and figuring out where the bottlenecks were and trying to understand like the software, why I was written poorly or like in a certain like inefficient way and, and optimizing. And it was just, Well, for whatever reason, that was always kind of where my instincts went, how do I make the system faster and better? Um, so I always kind of ended up with those problems and eventually I started working on this kernel that they built called brew, which is the, I think it, I think the acronyms to for binary runtime environment for wireless, but it was basically the application mobile OS that Qualcomm built for all the flip phones. And I forget what year it was this, maybe 2004 or something like that, 2005. Um, phones were, you know, that were flip phones. Like, I don't know if anyone remembers that. But basically, at that time, the only thing that people used their phones for, for were calling and downloading ringtones. And even like SMS hasn't really taken off in the United States. I, I remember that for like, sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, but we were building this like application thing and like pitching to the world that like, look, your phone's going to be a computer that you hold in your hand in like less than a decade. Um, it's going to have a full-featured web browser, but right now it can't. So we have to like build this like janky mobile mobile web thing, like a whole bunch of stuff just to make it run on these small devices. But every year, the devices literally got twice as fast. It was faster than Moore's law, like acceleration. And so like when you're doing all this
0: stuff, I remember you talking about, I, I've heard you here say this a few times, it's like you said you became an actual um, software engineer when you, I can't remember what hard, what, what what was the thing that you were doing? You said like, that's when I actually became an engineer when you were like trying to solve some sort of problem.
1: Yeah, we <laughs> because these are very memory constrained devices, everything was written in C, but because we wanted some decent software architecture, the the structure of the code was laid out uh, with C++ compatible virtual tables. We had basically implemented like a rust trait system with inheritance that had a structure with function pointers and reference counts, and like it was very bespoke and like hand-tuned, but you know, could run in a sub2 megabyte RAM device and would load your contacts app in like less than 50 milliseconds. And if you go to your Saga or your iPhone right now and try to load contacts, it takes a while. Like it's, you can actually like see it like churning through stuff. So that was actually like kind of like doing all those optimizations, trying to fit everything in, in memory and like these were like 16 bit devices not even 64 <laughs> like the byte codes were 16 bit uh it was pretty fun like just you were always like fighting the hardware as it was doubling at the same time so it was kind of like uh interesting weird challenge there
0: and i feel like you always talked about like basically your like in that job, your whole entire job was to basically cram around as many bits and bytes as you could to transfer it at one device to another at the speed of light. Like that's like the optimal goal there, right?
1: Yeah. So as these devices got more complex, uh, they started calling them system and a chip. And this is kind of like you take all the stuff that's in your PC. I think modern day laptops are closer to system and a chip but like you look at your pc with all the cards right on the motherboard all of that stuff is shrunk down to the chip itself and it's just all put on a chip directly as different components and you gotta still build communication protocols between them there's message buses and all this stuff and you want to minimize the amount of time you spend sending data and like waiting for things and like build the right kind of protocols and deal with consistency and all of this other things. Um, So like one of my last projects um, was like part of this, uh, the advanced technologies group, very fancy name, Uh, but we were basically trying to figure out how to use all these extra systems on a chip that were on a Qualcomm device for other things. So there are all these DSPs that are mostly used for voice, but they're super efficient, super powerful DSPs. So we figured out how to like make them work from the OS like from Android and got people to start writing like augmented reality and like VR AR stuff and like sound and at least all these like high level processing features and it was like the first device that had AR was built on that it was like Google's Project Tango um so a lot of work kind of went into that like low level like optimizations trying to analyze how things work and like. And also at the same time, building a platform for developers. So yeah, all all my big projects ended up somehow like I'm building something between the bare metal and and the developer.
0: (laughs) But you usually, you stopped before like the abstractions that were
1: built on top of that though. You were sort of like, you stayed pretty low. Um, tend to actually go like, I would try to actually get pretty vertically integrated like from the. From some interface that the developers would use directly down to the metal. Cause there's a lot of spots there where like a poor abstraction can like add, you know, massive overhead. Right.
0: So I wanna, I wanna save a lot of this Solana stuff for later. So I sort of wanna hear like um, the, uh, actually, so, so you're doing like, you were basically talking about one of the last projects you worked on. So like, what year was that roughly? uh shoot maybe like 2013 so you worked at one job your entire life before solana out of college you worked at qualcomm your entire career basically in the in those early days
1: yeah then then they like bounced to a couple companies in silicon valley after that so i went to mesosphere and then dropbox
0: now i'm curious to hear like pre-solana any of this stuff like what was your like i'm assuming like what was your first intro introduction to crypto or just like all the things you found along the way? Was it Bitcoin? Was it sh-
1: like, did you trade shit coins? Yeah.
0: I, I know Ethereum it, had yeah, some yeah. things
1: to do. So, yeah. So like, um, I think everyone that was like a curious engineer had heard of Bitcoin and like, especially during the, um, financial collapse in 2008, like when shit hit the fan with like finances and Greece was going to like melt down and like take over people's like banking accounts. Bitcoin actually came into the forefront, but I, I heard of it a bit before that. Um And like my interest in it was like, oh, well, I could mine it. And that was like, I was trying to, I like mined it the, on my CPU. And then like, I was trying to figure out how to like build a faster miner that would run on GPUs. But before I like got that project going, somebody released, A GPU miner. And then shortly (laughs) after, uh, people were like building stuff on FPGAs and and, like designing ASICs. And the best memory that I have of that period was that like there's a company that promised to be like the first ASIC on the market. And uh, you like send them money. And they delayed shipping the ASICs so they could mine Bitcoin with the ASICs that they built <laughs> and extract all their like hash power supremacy out of the network. Cause then a bunch of other ASICs came in line and, and it was no longer like uh alpha to have that ASIC. So yeah. <laughs> it was like I think the, the definition of a rug, right? Like that was my first <laughs> my first true experience with crypto was was uh was that. Um I, like, didn't, even though, like, it was in the forefront, like, during the 2008 crisis and, like, you know, like, I was born in the Soviet Union and, like, the idea of having self-sovereign money that the state can't, like, censor is actually, like, I don't know, somehow burned into my skull. (laughs) It's pretty important. I didn't really take it seriously. And um, I remember the Ethereum... like announcement and like people funding it and, and like deciding to go build it. And again, I didn't really think of it, think too much of it, except that from my perspective, both of those systems were like kind of very slow. They weren't like designed like, uh, you know, with like high performance, low latency in mind. Um, so I didn't think that they were going to kind of scale to to really have much global impact because of that
0: yeah so this is pretty uh, this is a pretty good segue so like i like i know you've told this story a lot but like maybe you've left out some details along the way when you tell it it's just like okay you saw that they were slow eventually you were like hey i could do that but way fucking faster because i know how wireless systems work and, and gpus and then like i guess if that's the way that it went like i know that you it wasn't just anatoly who did all of this, like there was a team behind this, like Greg Fitzgerald and like these, like these guys that you recruited. So like, how did that whole thing work? Once you that idea, was it two coffees and a beer when you built Solana or was it two coffees and a beer when you like had the idea that, hey, I'm gonna do this?
1: This was 2017. So there was this like the first big bull market and the idea of smart contracts actually came into the forefront and at that time, There was like all sorts of crazy possibilities of what smart contracts could be, but the primary thing people are using them for is just raising capital. Um, Like, And what I thought was really cool about it was that it's a new developer platform, that there's a way for devs to go like write new kind of code that's in a new environment. And that environment was very, very much computationally constrained. So it reminded me of the two megabyte flip phone. (laughs) (laughs) like this thing is very slow. has very little amount of memory and storage and you got to like optimize every byte. So that's really what like inspired me to think about this stuff. And at the time, like Steve Ackridge is like one of the co-founders and is like the master of optimizations at labs. Um, Him and I were building this like side project that was, Mining crypto in the background, but we were building GPUs for deep learning. We could have stuck with that, (laughs) (laughs) and this would have been a totally different podcast. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, but because it it was mining crypto in the background, I like started thinking deeper. Okay, what is this stupid thing worth anything? Like, why? What's the point of mining? What? What is the actual proof of work doing? And literally two coffees and a beer at Cafe Soleil, I couldn't sleep. And I had this like, and we were talking about like, is it possible to build something like single threaded mining? Um, and I like had this Eureka moment that there's a way to encode passage of time as data. And I didn't know what these things were called, but these are called verifiable delay functions from a high level. We can argue whether the proof of history or the way that Solana's constructed is a true VDF or not, but like it's very similar conceptually and uh, it's a very rudimentary one. Um, And like these super smart people at Stanford and all over the place have been working on much more sophisticated versions of this, but I couldn't Google for it. Like it's not like the words verifiable delay function came into my head at four in the morning. Yeah. It was the it was the idea that there's a way to encode passage of time. And that's what gave me the instinct that if I have a source of time in the network, uh in this permissionless network similar to Bitcoin, then a very hard problem is solved, which is like uh, the way to like synchronize clocks and keep track of time in a permissionless way, and therefore you can probably get it to work. <laughs> Construct something similar to uh, like time division multiple access, which is what I'm very familiar with, which is what what most wireless protocols use. Is kind of the the first way to to uh, divide. So
0: you uh, ended up. So you ended up convincing a bunch of nerds you worked with to give up their careers
1: to go build this thing
0: with you. Is that, is that the way that it worked?
1: Um, no, like actually like I was kind of manic and super excited and eventually talked to my wife and she's like, okay, either like I have basically like for all my life, I've always had a side project. So since that, like whatever fateful day that I started messing around with Linux, in high school uh, and and like I've always been like tinkering um so my wife told me that like this isn't like a project that you can just tinker (laughs) because you gotta actually go full time or like it's you're not gonna be able to just like build a company and this as a side project like the space is too hot and kind of moving too fast so she kind of like pushed me to quit my job and like actually design and think about like what the company is going to be and like actually um like create a product that i could pitch and like go get funding for and the idea that i had was that like at that time like i didn't even know that i could even use a vdf to do anything useful in a blockchain i just had this like instinct i think i can construct a clock and it'll probably work (laughs) 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 and somehow that was like enough i think it was it was enough because i was able to get very very smart people from qualcomm that i worked with for over a decade and convince them that the most interesting part about all this is that there's now a software platform that devs are going to write code for and it's a new kind of platform that's just not possible in AWS or anywhere else, that it's a new kind of code that you're writing. It has to be trust minimized, auditable, provable, and uh, reproducible. Um, and that's something very, very new and unique. Um, so that that like idea of building an operating system was, I think, what got everyone together. And like what we thought we could focus on was that because of our experience, we could build like the most optimized fastest version of it. And what I thought was useful out of these systems that like come to Byzantine agreement is that they can guarantee uh, like fairness with regards to how information propagates through, through this network. And that's very important for finance because I don't know if you ever traded, like when you submit an order, like a bunch of people get to look at your order before it hits an exchange. And when you get to see a quote, a bunch of people have looked at that quote before it got to you. So you're seeing stale information and none of that is very fair, right? So you get to see very kind of delayed reads of what the market is. And when you try to do a write, a a lot of people get to, can write in front of you. Um, So both of those problems I thought were solvable by, something like that look like Ethereum but much much faster and like optimized to the hilt. So that was kind of the idea that I had. Um and that's what convinced I think a bunch of my colleagues at Qualcomm to, to join me. Um and that was pretty lucky because I was able to pull like you know like principal engineers, like really, really smart people that have worked on you know Compilers, GPU architecture, like network protocols, like uh, you know the LTE standard, like stuff that like fundamental technologies that like make all cell phones work, and have a lot of experience, like kind of and gut instincts on what's fast and what isn't.
0: Yeah, that's uh, it's funny. Like whenever we, I and I just want to say it. Like when you see online and people like arguing about the like the knowledge that like some people building Solana have. And like, I sort of like laugh in my head sometimes thinking like these guys were building systems on legacy phones that like nobody thought was possible. So like, it's, it's really cool to see how long did it take to build the very first version of the Solana protocol?
1: Um, so we got like, we were trying to do it incrementally. So we first proved that, we can we can process that many signatures per second on a single node. And that required four GPUs and we we're like targeting a million signatures per second. Um, so that was kind of showing that if you have a, a single node that can do that much, you know, if you have a network of these, it's going to run as fast as the slowest node in that bunch. But if the slowest node is doing a million things per second, that's that's pretty fast. So that was to demonstrate that you don't really need sharding and any other technologies. You just need to demonstrate that you can do that many signatures per second and that you can propagate the data out that quickly. And that took actually got something running in six months that was single leader, like a bunch of validators that were receiving the data. But like Turbine, sort of working but totally busted. <laughs> okay. and. And uh, no consensus. It was just single leader. Everyone receives the data and then votes. And we could see that they were doing stuff. And then we had a, a way to like load uh, C. We, we could write C code. Like we found a BPF virtual machine and uh, we got C compiler to generate. And we were actually writing our first smart contracts in C um, just to demonstrate that it works. That took about six months, which is pretty fast. But then it took almost two years to get consensus and everything else working. Luckily it was like depth of the bear market and it wouldn't have mattered if we we were delayed or not.
0: But you guys, you guys, I remember this conversation like sort of taking a big risk. You guys really didn't like weren't super proficient in rust as far as I know. And this was like a game time decision. You're like, should we do, do this or shouldn't we? And you just said, like screw it let's try it in rust or how did that
1: work um i mean that was like rust was an up-and-coming language i think the biggest risk there was that is rust gonna be sticky or not for us to to go use it it was the alternatives were go or like even and go still like people weren't sure at the time if go was going to be sticky or not or like C and just none of us wanted to code in C because it felt like work. (laughs) (laughs) And like, so I think we picked Rust because it was mostly performant and and like closest to like C and and like some high performance language. Um, And that worked out. Uh, I think you kind of see a lot of blockchains are built in Rust, which is funny, even though. Um, and like a few of them are, are programmable in rust. I, I
0: remember like Dan Alpert, um, at Solana foundation recently was sharing, like when you're talking about doing these tests and he, he's shared a photo recently of those guys building those bare metal boxes. Like, was that what you were testing on at the time? Or were you test, were you guys testing on cloud stuff?
1: Yeah, we were testing in Google cloud, but we wanted to test in bare metal because we, Google cloud is, is like doesn't simulate the real internet as much and like having bare metal systems, you just have more control and you can see the difference between like, you can, you know, change the switches up, you can change the mix, things like that. And how how many, how many of those bare metal systems did
0: you guys have whenever you like set that rack up?
1: I wasn't that much. Uh, I think it was like maybe around 20 or something like that. I think at most it's only later when like the, the whole foundation delegation program we got going that we got access to like you know a thousand boxes
0: and this whole so like that v1 the one or i guess like before Solana went live on mainnet how many engineers uh were actually actually had worked on that protocol like i mean i know the original founders and I like 12? i know some
1: 12 okay yeah it's not that many yeah. all engineers for like two years <laughs> um, so yeah 24 months of engineering time we're able to go from nothing to brand new everything brand new runtime brand new consensus mechanism brand new gossip protocol block propagation protocol all that stuff and like um it definitely like like we launched as fast as we could and we, we felt that um, it was safe that like there weren't any like safety bugs but liveness bugs were something that like it's just really really hard to test unless you're out on the open internet and you're interacting with every kind of system that's just like doing the thing that you don't expect um, so even even though we had like a like a uh, tour to soul which is like a program for validators to join the network and then try to crash it and all this other stuff and like if we incentivize like malicious behavior in the network it's really really hard to uh to like actually test it the way that the real world does so yeah so um like the
0: the experience of like building solana so you say you you did that in what in 24 months yep and you earlier you mentioned sort of like like you were talking mostly about like order books and, and how and how that works. And so was your, like, obviously right now there's NFTs, there's gaming, there's social, like when you were actually building this, was your whole mind sort of focused? Like, cause I think the original sort of marketing was like, like NASDAQ, um, like on the blockchain essentially. So was that your whole idea that this was it, gonna yeah. be a financial system without all this other stuff that lives there on the blockchain now?
1: Blockchain and Nasdaq speed. um, Yeah, we actually like talked to a bunch of different use cases, but I thought that was the hardest use case to get an order book working. And if we could get it to work, it meant that everything else was going to be easy because like the demands from an order book are really low fees, really fast finality, like confirmation times, and like the high high throughput. So if that was our kind of test case and it works. Then we probably solved all the other problems. And then we were almost right there. Like the yeah. one problem that I, I missed was that, like how quickly different kinds of use cases and different kinds of demands sprung up in the network that just was totally different than you'd expect out of an order book. Um, and that required a different kind of fee model than we initially anticipated. Yeah. And I, and, I, and also like
0: the thing that I didn't realize until like um, somewhere pretty far into 2021 or early 2022 was just like the complexity of DeFi transactions and like the sort of ramifications of some of that, which is like, it's hard to really know that. But like you, you see like how like the, the TPS of Solana, which most people call useless metrics, because when you actually factor in like what is happening on a DeFi transaction, it's like. Pretty, pretty incredible. It's not like just like sending a token from Chase to Tolly. It's like there's a lot that goes behind um, all of that. So moving on a little bit, like I, it was cool to hear sort of like the whole sort of idea about Solana. But like a lot of the stuff that we like to do on this show um, is is talk about like um, some things about Solana. And I always ask this question, and I actually asked the question very pointedly and i know you don't necessarily build on solana anymore but like what sucks about solana development like i know you have some opinions on some of this stuff and they're probably a little more like lower level than some of the engineers building DApps. but like like what sucks right now about building on solana
1: i would say that like the the lack of interfaces is probably like the biggest pain point um and that's being addressed there's like a whole project there um, and it's a very technical thing I mean there's a kind of two pain points one is a lack of interfaces the other one is that developers have to specify all the accounts account constraints the latter one is we can't you can't really get rid of it without incurring like a performance cost like because we force the devs to specify all the dependencies up front like because the runtime Forces devs to do that, like the runtime can then take advantage of that information and schedule everything in parallel and optimize all the prefetches and that percolates up to the fee markets. You can actually run local fee markets. So all all of those things are really important. But
0: that was that was your thing for like that was the trade-off. Make Solana faster by forcing the devs to like rip their hair yep. out.
1: Yep. <laughs> It's getting better because what happens is that one dev rips their hair out, then they write a JavaScript <laughs> library that does it all for you. And like to mint a compressed NFT, which is a very, very complex stack, massively complicated stack of, of things, if you really think of it from end to end, is like two lines of JavaScript at this point. <laughs> yeah. So, like, but this is like kind of something that a lot of people like when they. Co- like what I think a lot of people misunderstand about developer experience, it's not about like making everything simple. It's about solving a really, really hard problem that would block a dev like either indefinitely or for six months or for like for a very long time, because it requires coordination with many people or something like that to, to fix like, but you really want like you can actually give devs problems that they can Punch out in the weekend. Like all the yeah. stuff that you don't do, like it, it, that devs can complete in a weekend is not actually like, you know, it's okay, right? Like that, those problems are okay to leave to developers. What's really painful to leave for devs are things that they cannot fix. And like one of those things are like expensive fees. If the fees skyrocket, you can't, like a dev, there's nothing a dev can do, right? They're kind of blocked. Same thing with congestion. So like those are like reliability and like those kinds of issues we got to fix those
0: well there's been a lot of work done there like you know the past like year and a half two years like there's been some ups and downs and like i i don't think people realize the undertaking that it was to number one like identify that quick and local fee markets were the solution like that it took months for that to even be proposed as an idea and then like the actual work behind it that made that happen was just like I don't. My brain doesn't comprehend what went on behind that personally, and I think probably that's for that's true for most people uh, who watch this show.
1: Yeah, this was like a problem that uh, um, is obvious in retrospect, but like at the time, we kind of assumed that all transactions or a very large number of transactions we're going to see in the network are, are going to look like serum or like open book tra- transactions, which are like orders in an order book. You have like they're very fast, they're small, and they don't. They don't touch a lot of state. But as soon as you have DeFi, you start seeing people create arbitrage transactions that basically try to touch as much state as possible and maximize the value out of that. So they are submitting these very, very big giant transactions on the network, and those were not properly scheduled or prioritized. And that caused like runtime congestion. That was like one set of problems that we had to fix. So we had to create a compute budget and gas metering and all this stuff. And then the other side of it is like when NFTs took off, you'd have an NFT mint and like literally people would spin up like bot farms that would submit a hundred gigabit worth of like requests to be first uh, to mint. <laughs> so Yes. Like, Those are some pretty
0: <laughs> dark times to be honest for yeah. most of us around
1: here. <laughs> but- so like, and yeah. And like, we had to fix those problems too. And the I don't the cool thing is that like I don't think we would have had the solution had we not taken this like kind of more painful road. I think the naive solution is to just like globally raise fees. Like make make the fees go up and then that causes the spam to back off. But that's very problematic because that means that if you have a system with DeFi cannot support payments at the same time. Those are non-overlapping use cases and if defi causes fees globally to go up or nfts cause fees globally to go up, it actually means that you should split the network into three. One that's only does payments, one that only does defi, one that only does nfts. Otherwise, and,
0: otherwise somebody goes to the grocery store on a huge like right. defi stuff and they swipe their card and like they're they're like what the hell was that? That cost more than my coffee.
1: Exactly. So figuring out that that problem existed and that we had a unique solution was like painful process but i think resulted in like i think a really awesome product like at the end of the day so because we had all of these fixes or all of these things that we added to the runtime to make it parallel meaning that the devs had all the all their state dependencies declared ahead of time you could actually trace this up to where transactions that are added to a block producer and that block producer can look at all the transactions that are trying to access like a hotspot. Like this is why this is embarrassing in retrospect. It's a classic <laughs> database hotspot problem. Like everyone's trying to access the same hotspot in a database. We can actually prioritize those separately from everything else. And once you do that, you kind of have these very nice, uh, isolation for fees. And these local fee markets then can charge access to to the state locally, and they don't impact any other fees. Um, so once that was in place, the network like massively stabilized. We stopped getting these like big DDoS attack vectors, and um, Defi liquidations would reliably clear, and like everything's working. So I wish we could have launched with that. Like, but <laughs> sometimes you don't get. <laughs> you, you know you don't have control over that yeah um so the next
0: the next thing i love to ask is like so we talked about like what you think is like really like not good stuff about development on solana but like what like for in your opinion like what what is great about developing on solana it could be a wide spectrum of like your choice you interpret that however you want like what's great about building on solana for developers it could be the the tooling it could be like just
1: anything i think you have like now really good set of tools and commu- like ecosystem companies like Helios and Metaplex and like, you know, Tensor and Magic Eden and like, and like, you know, for whatever kind of thing that you want to build, there's already a very robust, sophisticated API that can get you going and like really cut your development time by, you know, a factor of ton. A lot of the stuff that you need to do has already been written. All you need to do is just kind of manipulate it from the client side with JavaScript, um, including even things like governance with like every kind of voting scheme you could imagine, use compressed NFTs for votes, using regular NFTs for votes or whatever you want to do. Um, a lot of the stuff basically exists, uh, it, what we're seeing now are like people then taking these pieces and then like creating new innovative products. So like Vibo is not a, a, he's not like a super systems engineer. Uh, he's, he's more like a consumer like kind of application like developer. His, the, the app that he built is minted more NFTs than I think any other app in crypto. It's like over talking 20 about Trip million NFTs. Yeah, Drip House has minted more NFTs than I think every other application combined. (laughs) Yeah, it's
0: it's incredible. And like also now we have Helium with the hotspots and like there's just like so much cool shit going on. And also like even though this might make you cringe, like we do have Seahorse Lang, which you can literally like write Solana programs and that actually works. And that we also are working on some things around the TypeScript version of this. Like the whole goal here is just to like make this accessible as possible to anybody. And like every day there's like some new abstraction. There's a unity SDK for Solana. People are building on chain games now. So to, to watch. So I've been here for a little over two years to watch the days when I came in and like discord was somebody would ask how to like transfer a soul and the core engineers would just tell somebody to go look at the tests gone are those days because we actually <laughs> have the have the resources and like like you said apis and like webtooth style yeah. sdks that do the indexing and like all the stuff for you like it's like um there's only a few gra- glass chewers left in this world like noah prince and a handful of these guys that actually are masochists who love actually pain so they uh <laughs> they're, 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 there's there's still some wild cowboys out there that actually love like just figuring the shit out that nobody else wants to do um so to wrap all this up man like there's there's one final question that i want to ask you and like just for all the listeners on this show it's a lot of younger devs older devs but the real question is like what about that guy who's just thinking about getting into web 3 and building on solana or the guy who just started who's sort of unsure about like what the future looks like like what sort of advice would you give that person who's like really passionate about this but like not quite there yet
1: um like we've had a ton of companies start out through hackathons, like just go like submit. And even if they don't, um, even if your project doesn't make it, you can get hired, you can meet like an awesome team and then work on, then your next hackathon submission, there's a ton of stories of people are like, Hey, we met during a hackathon and then we continued building and, and like, if now built like mango markets or whatever. Right. Like just. It just takes like a bit of perseverance and iteration, but that's what starting any company takes. A lot of it is just plus blood, sweat, and tears and iteration.
0: Yeah. And I talk about this a lot. Like I tell people the ones that grind and stick around eventually find success if they work hard enough. Like obviously that's not a hundred percent, but I I tell the story sometimes I met tensor two years ago um, and they had no idea what they were building. It was something not tensor. And then, like, two years later, multiple iterations later, like, they didn't just find success overnight. They spent two years figuring out what the hell they were going to do. And then, like, they crushed it. And, like, here they are basically just um, just really doing an amazing job with, with their marketplace. Um, so, uh, anyways, like, I mean, I think that's good advice. Like, you just, like, global hackathons are the big opportunity. Find the right teams, the right people, and just start collaborating and trying to build something fucking cool and and just keep at it well thanks Tolly. uh appreciate your time jumping on on the show um it was really i know you're a pretty busy guy i think you're on more podcasts than joe rogan at this point in time so we'll uh we'll just go ahead and uh and wrap it up but again man thanks a lot thanks to everybody to watching and see you next time see you